Okay, welcome to Nurse Yes Degree. This is the show where I talk to developers who are self-taught or have been to coding boot camps, and I find out how they've become successful. I'm joined today by Arvid Kahl, who is the co-founder of Feedback Panda, which was an education SaaS which helped teachers of English. He grew that to an amazing $55,000 MRR, then shared that publicly on Indie Hackers, sold it to a private equity company, and is doing great work at the moment with his zero to sold ebook. This episode is brought to you by RunCloud, the best and easiest way to deploy and manage your cloud infrastructure. With one-click installers for WordPress and more, support for open light speed, as well as Nginx server stacks, getting started and taking control of your hosting stack has never been easier. So yeah, it's great to have you on the show, Arvid. Thanks so much for having me. Quite excited. Like yeah, I, I very much remember all all the things you've been doing for the last couple of years, and I've always been excited by finally having somebody speak about the non traditional way, you know, to to get into um, any IT based job. So I, it certainly was similar for me. Um, even though I went to university at some point, they kind of flunked that and I kind of dropped out of that, but still ended up in the industry that I wanted to be in. Yeah. So I'm, I'm quite excited to be here today. That's awesome. So you're saying that you don't have a PhD from Stanford? Because that, <laughs> no, that's the I, only I, way you can become a developer. Come on. Oh, you got to tell it's, the truth. You know, it's it's actually quite sad, um, and obviously you've seen lots of examples of people who who you went and became developers, even though they don't have any kind of academic background, but to, to know that there's still countries and still like whole societies that, that force developers into taking physics courses and that kind of stuff at a mm. university level, just to then end up at a, at any kind of internet uh, software development agency where nothing is related to high level particle physics or stuff like that. Right. It's really yeah. not the point. And I've, I've grown to to understand that hey, the only thing you really need to have is passion for building things, passion for creating solutions to people's problems, and you'll be a good developer. Depending, obviously, on the branch or the industry you want to go into. Like, if you want to be in, I don't know, autonomous driving, you might want to have a background in like certain kinds of mathematics and and maybe even physics. But if you want to build SaaS products for people who have no idea how to use the computer, right? If you have a really, really low bar, then you don't need all these fancy degrees. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I went to university. Maybe, maybe let me tell you more about my sure. my uh, CS uh, upbringing. Um, started a bit earlier, maybe. I started having a computer when I was like 12 or 13 years old, and it was like a 386 kind of pre-Pentium situation computer. Like Windows 89 was a new thing back then. So, wow. it, you know, that's where I started. But I uh, quite quickly understood that, hey, you can actually instruct this thing to do stuff for you. This is pretty awesome. And when your computers came with better like CPUs and stuff like Napster started appearing, you know, like file sharing and um, people actually exchanging information on, on the web, IRC, the chat system where you could talk to people all over the world, quite, quite quickly that I want to actually build stuff for that system. So even while still in school, I was already interested in learning how to program. I took a course, an after-school course in, in Turbo Pascal, one of the really, really ancient programming languages by today's standards. I just went there after school and um, into like a, a little institution that was part of our university, but for students that were not in a university yet, 
took a school uh, a course there once a week for a couple of years and just learned how to code from that, which you could almost consider bootcamp because yeah. it certainly wasn't Before the regular curriculum, like right? Invented. It was like a, a really, I was maybe 14, 15, 16 at that point. And just to, taking the basic steps of programming, just understanding like what functions are, what, what uh, the for loops, if then else, that kind of stuff. And then I thought, hey, yeah, this this could be my future. So once I was done with school, I went to university for uh, computer science, which obviously um, is the path for so many, right? Who who have an inclination, but uh, yeah, don't see an alternative. I went there, and it was horrible. Like I was learning interesting stuff, but none of it was related to the things I wanted to do. Like building cool projects, building cool software. Well, that's not going to happen if you're in theoretical computer science 101, right? Where you go into logic and all kinds of like Bacchus Nauer form based logic expressions. Great if you know it, but you don't need it, <laughs> you know, unless you're building another compiler or like building these foundational tools for, for computer science. Probably likely that you're not going to need this. So I dropped out of that at some point. I thought, hey, I still kind of want to learn more stuff. University was cool for the just exposure to knowledge. So I, I went and uh, started a philosophy slash political science um, studies. Dropped out of that too, because it wasn't that interesting after a while, a couple of years. So I, I think I spent eight or some years at a university, but don't have a degree in anything at all. I just had a, had a lot of time at university. And meanwhile, during that time, I went and got a job at a web agency building software, PHP-based software for all kinds of clients. So it was super interesting. I had oh. this real pragmatic work at my job and this super abstract stuff in university, and they did not connect at all. <laughs> That's my experience with um, computer science. Obviously, if you want to be a professor for computer science building, I don't know, cryptographic um the, the future of uh, crypto uh, or, or stuff like that, or, or investigating even whatever is happening in the space. If you want to be an academic, obviously you want to go to university. But if you want to be pragmatic, you just do the thing. <laughs> you know, you can yeah. teach yourself, or you find people who can teach you that kind of stuff um, in a much shorter time with much less abstraction. So that actually happened. Once I dropped out of the second um, series of studies, must have been around 2010, 11. I just floated around building a couple projects on GitHub, building things that I found interesting. And then I got a, a tweet from a CEO of a Silicon Valley company that was venture funded. He had found my stuff on GitHub, the little projects that I just built because I had nothing else to do and was just ex exploring and experimenting. And he thought, hey, you want, you want a gig? Do you want a job? Your stuff that you're building is exactly the tech that we're currently using for our project here. And um, you want to come visit? Like, want to see if this could work out? And two wow. weeks later, I was sitting on a plane from Berlin to San Francisco, just on the invitation of that guy, hung out with them for a couple of weeks. And I was pretty clear, yeah, this is a place that I want to work for. So flew back to Germany. It was a remote gig as well. And um, worked for that company for quite a while. Just really from having built stuff. That's on crazy. Time, even though it was just an experimental thing. It was so a little, like... A, image boards that I just wanted to see if I could build it. So I did. And that invited this well-paying Silicon Valley job for me, just from having the right tech at the right time. So did you, had you put it on like Hacker News or did, how did they find you? 
at that point, honestly, I think um, that, that CEO just really browsed GitHub for people who were using CoffeeScript, which uh, used to be a thing. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of JavaScript, but it, it, slightly, I, slightly better. Yeah, Remember that? it sounds like a kind of... <laughs> And it was before I got into coding, but it sounds kind yeah. of like a medieval kind of like uh, kind of thing. You know, it, it was a big thing back in 2012. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It's not anymore. Yeah. Hey, you, you yeah. know, well, many of the the things from CoffeeScript that, that would be actually the good parts, I guess, were integrated into JavaScript. Like if, you, right. if you work with arrow functions at this point, that's where it's from. So, ah. you know, it's, it's like a whole evolutionary thing. But at that point, it was CoffeeScript and using MongoDB as a backend and Node.js as a, as a um, yeah, backend server infrastructure, I had just looked at, wait, what's the, the current thing that people are building with? I had built something with that, and he was looking for projects like this by people who are interested in it, and um, then just reached out to them. That's how they source their developers, for people who are interested enough in modern technology to build something with it. Yeah, so I cool. haven't posted it anywhere. I, I, I don't think I even was on Hacker News at this point. I was just building stuff for myself. Um, yeah, and, and that got me this this invite into the industry. And honestly, working for this company taught me more in two weeks than four years of university taught me about coding. Because it's just a pragmatic approach, right? You mm. get thrown into a code base. Here, this is what you have to figure out. This is how you install the thing, run it, and then add stuff to it. Obviously, this teaches you much faster than if you go at it from a more academic perspective. So that was really interesting. And that kind of taught me that if you want to learn something, you just have to build stuff. Right? Not pointlessly, not aimlessly. You do have to have a goal behind it, but you have to get your hands dirty actually working with the product or building the product, working with the technology. Otherwise, it's so abstract, it's not going to do you any good. So that led to my first job, real job um, outside of university. Um, then I experienced a level of burnout because it was a Silicon Valley company. They expected sure. quite a bit. And like with the time change between like the West Coast and, and Europe, where I was in the middle of Europe, there was a lot of, you know, um, let, let's call it mental issues at that point that, that made it a hard uh harder on me than I thought. So it was my first kind of fight with burnout at the point. So I, I stopped working for them. I um, tried to collect myself, start again, f figure out what to do next, went to Berlin. Back then I was living in Dresden, which is my hometown, more um, in East Germany, former former East Germany, still kind of East, but you know. Um, and um, I went to Berlin, lived with a friend, lived on their couch. He had a, an app idea, a business idea, I kind of started that with them, bootstrap business, trying to build a local food marketplace here in Berlin. That flopped, but it was interesting, super interesting experience. Tried to build something else with other friends, um, little photojournalism app for embedded photographers uh, who are in war zones and have to upload their data. That wow. also flopped for different reasons. There is a lot of interesting knowledge that I accumulated just from failing a couple times with these businesses. Then I actually got a real job as a software engineer um, because all these projects that I had, that I had built kind of introduced me to more people that had connections to agencies, to freelance agencies, and they had a, an opening. I got into that company in Hamburg, Germany, um, working on IoT projects. And that was my first experience with Elixir, the Elixir programming language, because we used it for the IoT platform there. Because in IoT, you have a lot of concurrency, a lot of data just flying in and out all the time. And Elixir, based on Erlang, the, the Beam VM, which is something that, that Ericsson built for the phone switching network, that technology is really nice at handling all these kind of things. So that's where I learned Elixir. 
And I then, um, I, I already was living with my girlfriend, Danielle. She was an English online teacher. Um, and I then used the same technology to build a SaaS helping English online teachers be more productive at their jobs. And that's awesome. where Feedback Panda started. 2017, I guess, was, was the, around the time when we started, came up with the idea because Danielle had a problem and together we came up with a solution. And once that solution was actually making some noticeable money, we turned full time. We were both still working in our jobs while we built mm -hmm. the business, but we can dive into that. Two years later, we sold the company and ever since uh, life has been quite different. <laughs> yeah, that. I bet it has. I bet it has. <laughs> so yeah, can you explain kind of like what the problem your girlfriend Danielle had? Sure. And because uh, it's interesting, like my, my girlfriend is a teacher as well. So they have like a really heavy workload and everything. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you can explain that, that'd be great. So I mean, prior to going to Hamburg, I started like listening to a lot of podcasts and reading a lot of books about entrepreneurship and solopreneurship and building businesses. So I always felt like I really want to build a meaningful business at some point. I learned all these things and then I just kind of had my eye open for an opportunity, right? So just as, as a backdrop to this. And um, obviously Danielle uh, would find that interesting because like uh, having a business with your partner is an interesting idea. So we kind of looked into what we could do, had a couple ideas that didn't pan out, but then at one point we noticed, hey, with your current job, teaching English online to Chinese children over the internet in a browser-based web portal for one big Chinese company, that was kind of what she was doing, um, you seem to be teaching quite a lot, 10 hours a day, and that's the fun part. But then there's these two hours of admin work, administrative stuff, where you have to write reports for the parents of the student to read how their kid did and what they can train if they want to be better, like all this stuff. This feels like it's not fun. And it's uh, it was also at that point something that was mandatory. If you didn't file these reports for every half hour that you would teach a student, you would need to file a couple paragraphs of text. And if you teach for 10 hours, that's 20 students and that's 20 reports that you would need to file, particularly if you need to do that after you teach them, try to remember 20 different kids that you taught yeah. potentially the same lessons in any given day and then tell them what to do. That was a lot of work and it was very stressful, cognitively very stressful for the teachers. So we figured that um, a lot of teachers and Danielle included at some point started building their own systems to cope with this. She had a Word document here and a couple Excel sheets there where she would take little text templates that she would reuse because the for a Chinese company like this, all the curriculum was pretty much structured uh, for the teachers. So teachers didn't have any say in what they were going to teach. They got what they were supposed to teach, like a PowerPoint and mm. you know that kind of stuff. Um, and since they these teachers were always teaching the same stuff. They were reusing text in student reports, right? Today we learned about apples and the color red. And, you know, if your kid wants to improve that, then let them do these four steps or something. You can use this as a template. And that's what teachers started doing, but in their own crude systems. So I, I kind of looked at the system that Danielle had, which was a couple files here and there. And we looked into this together and said, hey, we could probably build an automation here, a system that takes a link to your classroom, which conveniently had the student ID, the course ID, and the class ID in the URL, just three numbers. We figured that out. Okay. And if we can use these numbers to automatically fetch, like which student is it and which course have you just taught, then we can automatically take their name and put it into your template and just make it co like copy and paste and you're done with your work. 
what took you minutes, if not like tens of minutes for each student, just typing it out, you can now do in a second or two. And that was right. the value prop. So I built the system for Danielle. She was essentially the first user, right? She, we were dog feeding the project mm -hmm. to us and the product. Um, improved it so it worked for her. And since all these teachers that were teaching for this Chinese company essentially had the same job because it was very um, streamlined from the company, we thought, hey, this is something that all these other people could probably also use. Um, while I built this, we did some customer research because obviously we didn't want to fall into the trap of building something that nobody wanted to use. So we, we were deeply embedded in the communities. Danielle in particular, she was part of all these Facebook groups where there was thousands of these teachers just talking mm. about their job. And there were other community forums as well where they were all congregating. And we looked into the, the most commonly expressed problems that they have had at that point, And that was feedback was the biggest problem that they had. They had okay. other problems like payment tracking and schedule overlap, but not every teacher had that problem, only some, but every teacher had feedback as a problem. Every teacher wasted an hour or two a day just dealing mm. with this. So that's, that's what we went with. Um, that's the problem we solved. It was, it was the most critical problem at that time for every teacher and Danielle as well. And yeah, built something. Um, I had built a lot of SaaS platforms before in my prior jobs and my prior failed business attempt. So I knew yeah. how to build this, integrate payment, integrate logins, you know, that stuff, emails. And we just released it, put a little link to it in a reply to one of those questions in, in those Facebook groups where people asked, how do you deal with feedback? This is so stressful. How do you do this? We just said, hey, we use Feedback Panda. Put the link in there. Like obviously, yeah. hey, we also built Feedback Panda, but that <laughs> was not that important at that point. People started coming into the project. They um, started logging in and checking it out. We had a 30-day trial. We had a 30-plus percent conversion rate from the start. People uh, actually subscribing to this because it was a clear, very clear solution to a very clear problem that was critical for all of them. Right? It was, like I said, our niche was online English teacher teaching English as a second language to Chinese children through a web-based browser <laughs> in interface for Chinese companies as a freelance position. Wow, that's, that's a lot niche, of niche. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. all of them overlapping. And so they have, the problems in that niche are very common, very commonly held by everybody in there. So that really helped us figure out a very specific tool to build. And we didn't ever have to expand it into any other place because that's also great. This industry is growing. Like we started out with 5,000 people in those Facebook groups, 5,000 of these teachers. A couple months later, we had 7,000 teachers in those groups. A year into our business, there was 15,000 teachers in those groups. And two wow. years into our business, just when we sold, there was like 75 or 50,000 teachers in that group. Wow. Like the, that market was expanding. It was quite yeah. literally expanding and we just had to hook into it. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure it would be a lot harder if you'd made Feedback Panda and you're going into these groups now, yeah. I guess. I mean, uh, yes. I, I mean, there's still growth, obviously, right? Particularly now with the remote teaching situation that is happening all over the place. There's a lot of growth in the not just these Chinese companies, but their European and American equivalents, right? Mm -hmm. People trying to do um, remote schooling in any shape or form currently need a lot of teachers and they need a... Uh, they do have a lot of customers or in interested customers, prospects, right? That, that stuff is still going on. We probably would, if we were to build something right now, would build something different 
for another market because it just has changed, right? Right now, you're, you're trying to not school kids in a one-on-one -on -one situation, but in a one-on-many. So that, that would be different. But VIP Kit, the, the company that Danielle was teaching for, a Chinese company, they had a one-on-one -on -one situation and we built tools for this one-on-one -on -one feedback situation as well. So that would probably be different right now. But yeah, um, cool. it's still an, an emerging market, like remote yeah. tooling and remote education in particular. That's still in its foot, again, it's, it's baby baby shoes. Is that the right phrase? You know, it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's, it's in a very early you, stage. Um, but I, I definitely think we would now go for a slightly different market segment. That's right. Cool. Um, I was kind of wondering, like, um, like I've, like I've heard your story before about like going into like, like Facebook groups and saying like, Hey, we built this tool and everything. And I guess it's, uh, the classic thing for developers is like, you know, people go on Reddit or how can you be like, Hey, I made this thing to help you. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, Oh, self-promotion, yeah. ban, kick, kick this user. Like how are, are teachers just nicer or did, uh, how, how did they react? That was, that was one of the things that we, we really looked into in the beginning. Like it, first off, is there a budget for this kind of stuff? Do people even talk about tools? Do they recommend things to each other? Is, is that allowed? And, um, the one thing that teachers love to do is to help other people. You know, like that's like the basic competence of a teacher is to empower others. Yeah. So talking about things that help you help other people is allowed in these communities. And okay. we really didn't push it. We didn't say, Hey, um, we did, we didn't post anything about feedback Panda. We only replied with it. That, that was a, a slight, um, mm. difference there, right? We didn't throw our project into, um, the ring for people to observe it. We just said like, Hey, some people use Google sheets. Some people use their own crude little system. Hey, we use feedback panda for this and we yeah. were careful not to push it too much i know reddit is different like if you go to, to reddit and you go into any community and you even just put a link in there not even to your own product called promotion sometimes like really some some of these communities have uh, very strict guidelines but these guidelines come from having experienced spam and marketing Right? These communities, they, they are protective. This isn't just because they don't like people providing value to them. That, that is not really the case. They, their experience is the moment you open the doors, you open the floodgates. That's the problem. Mm. Like People will try to abuse your leniency to plug their stuff. Right. So the, the, the problem usually boils down to how long has this person talking about their product been in our community? And if you've been there for a half a year or a couple months and you've been a valuable contributor to the community, you can very likely put a link to your project in a reply and people will not mind. If you joined yesterday and your name is forum user 473 and you have never replied to anybody, but now you have this whole essay on how your product is amazing. You know, like that, that's yeah. not a big surprise that people won't accept that. That's one of those things that I'm actually writing about right now. So I'm, I'm writing a, a book. We haven't really talked about this much, but I wrote sure. a book about this whole feature kind of experience called Zero to Sold. It's the name of the book. And that was quite successful. So I dove into one particular part of this book, um, the audience part and uh, the um, building a product from an audience driven kind of mindset. And I'm now writing a different book, a second book called the embedded entrepreneur, where I talk about going into communities and building your product with and in that community to actually have this, this kind of, um, validation system built in, right? Instead of building something like many developers would, they would think, oh yeah, I have this idea. 
then he built this, and then they built that, and then they kind of throw it out there and hope that people bite, right? There's a lot of assumption in this, a lot of, oh yeah, there are enough people, and oh yeah, this is actually solving a problem. And if you don't validate those assumptions, you're going to have a bad time, particularly if those communities then see you as this kind of intruder just peddling their wares. So mm. what I suggest um, for everybody, doesn't matter if they are developers or coming from a marketing angle or business or whatever, if you want to build something new, well, how about you stop thinking about your idea and you start thinking about who you're going to serve? Because if you do that and join people in their communities, just really in their, on Twitter or on their forums or in their, their close Telegram groups or wherever you are, people will coalesce around a certain interest or a certain profession slacks are there discords there's a lot of communities out there and i also went through that um listing in the book because i figured out in doing the research oh god there's a lot of stuff like there's mm -hmm. infospace communities there's circumstance-based communities um there's practice-based communities and they're all slightly different in how they approach value creation how they approach helping each other and how they approach allowing people to sell so that is, has been an, quite an enlightening um, thing to do research on. But the moment you embed yourself in a community, the moment you join Twitter and you hang out with people, you engage in conversations with them, you share other people's tweets and you retweet them with a little twist and you give your opinion and you talk to people in DMs, the moment you become a part of a community, people will see you as a contributor. They're not, mm. they're not going to see you as an intruder. They're going to see you as one of them. And the moment you're one of them, you can actually leverage your position as a person like, of rising fame and reputation in that community. And you can have people, first off, tell you what problems they have. You can listen to them, obviously, but you can also ask them. And the more reputation you have, the more people will chime in and give you their opinion, right? And then you can have them actually look at the thing you're building. Like you say, I want to solve this problem. Do you have like 10 minutes and just really chat with me about the little problems that you have in that space? You, you'll get a lot of no's, but you'll get some yeses, right? So there, there will be this kind of starting um, conversation between you and other people in the in this particular field. And then you build something and you invite them as beta users or beta readers. That's what I'm doing with my book. I have a list of 500 people who have been beta reading my drafts for the last three months. I, I had 500 part-time editors just working on my book essentially for free. They get access to the book and all the learnings in the book. I get oh. access to their brain for all the kind of, I don't understand this, or this is too slow. This is too fast. This doesn't make sense, right? It's an exchange. They get something, you get something. And this is the whole point of this is to not expect too much from people before you give them something. Um, right? Because if you contribute to a community, if you share interesting thoughts, or if you engage with people, just give your opinion or empower them by retweeting their content. Let's stay with Twitter as an example and making um, them capable of reaching more people to invite into their own discussion. Then they see you as somebody who gave them something valuable. And the more of that you do, and you can also blog and put blog posts on there and just provide valuable content all by itself, but engagement, empowerment and content, the more of that you do, the more people will build this expectation of reciprocity. They will want to give back in some capacity, right? Either by helping you when your launch day is, by retweeting your, your big launch tweet or your product hunt thing, uploading it, or by actually buying your product, which is kind of nice, right? You give them so much for free, so they kind of want to give you something in return, they buy your book or they buy a subscription to your community or they, you know, they, they just reciprocate in some capacity. And that can only happen. Sorry for the gigantic monologue here. That can yes, only yeah. happen 
when you are part of the community. If you are an intruder, it's not going to happen. Even if you give people a 50% discount on whatever, they will see you for who you are, just a salesman, right? And if you want to be somebody who has the heart of a community, who is, is kind of really a part of it, who is not just um, trying to get attention, but is actually a meaningful contributor, then good stuff can follow. And good stuff will follow reliably because this kind of reciprocity situation that I was talking about. And that is kind of um, where I draw the line in, in this kind of sales marketing in communities. You can always do it once you've contributed enough to that community, right? That will, that'll be fine. And you see a lot of people on Twitter, in forums, um, in, in certain groups, they, they will gladly talk about their products. I do that. Daniel Vassallo does it with his ebooks. Peter Levels does it with his products because they already have built the reputation that these are credible people that actually meaningfully contribute to the welfare of the community. So that hopefully answers your question about yeah. how to do marketing in communities. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good answer. Uh, yeah, it does totally make sense as well that, like, because... Danielle is a teacher. I think that helps you lots because if you're just like, hey, my name's Arvid. I'm making yeah. this new thing for teachers. Can I get like an like yeah. hundred of you to sign up? It's just going to be like, well, you know, you're not part of our group. You're, or you've like, anyone can like maybe join the Facebook group, but you're not like one of us. So yeah, yeah I can see that being really important. You grew Feedback Panda to like, like 55,000 a month. Mm -hmm. So like, That's right. Can you tell us like how, what went into like growing that and mm -hmm. any like anything that you would have done differently now or anything that you yeah. did incredibly well? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always easy in retrospect, right? And, and kind of hard looking into the future, but connecting the dots, that's one of those things that really only works in retrospect. But um, so what we did was heavily un or just understanding from the beginning that the community was very vital to our growth. Like this teacher community that we're gladly talking about all kinds of things and already recommending other products to each other. That was kind of the, the light bulb moment. Well, if we get them to recommend our product to new teachers joining this community and to each other while talking about the topic of feedback, that is the best thing we can have. Like word of mouth is the, the best kind of marketing. You, you can put a lot of money into ads, but if somebody that other people trust in, in a tribal community, such as teacher community, tells them, hey, you should really buy this product, that's gonna be a high conversion conversation. So we tried everything to make this easier. First off, we were nice people. Like that may be one of the most important things. We were actually nice people when people had a problem with customer support, when they came to us um, through intercom and talked to us about like a little bug they had in a, in a thing or something didn't work. We were spending a lot of time making them feel better, making them feel all right, helping them with the problem, solving it, giving them a refund if stuff didn't happen. Everything we did when it came to actually engaging the, our customers was a very positive, very supportive activity because that was the common sense in the teacher community. It's not like in the in the financial trading community where everybody's trying to have an edge over each other. Right? Yeah. The teacher community is, is a very network effect-based community. They, they were trying to help each other at all times. And understanding that this network effect was a driving force in the community also impacted our product decisions. So not only were we nice to teachers, 
and built uh, a lot of reputation as the two really nice founders that are also teachers and are building a tool for us in the community. We, we made it uh, a point to explain that it was two real people behind Fikta Kanda, not some big business, but yeah. it was Danielle and Arvid. And we were building this together because Danielle was a teacher. You know, the whole story, the narrative was very important in our communication. But we also built a network effect into the product. The product was essentially a templating tool, right? You wrote your templates and you would automatically pull them up and our system would replace the name of the student in the template. Um, but what we also built was a template sharing system where teachers could share templates with each other. So whenever somebody would teach a new lesson that they didn't have a template for, instead of having to write one, which could take 10 minutes, they could just go to our Feedback Panda cloud, click the little panda that was sitting on a cloud, and then it would pull up all these templates that hundreds, if not thousands of other teachers had already written. They could okay. browse through them, import them, and then they would have it in their own template system. And that was an internal network effect, which made the whole tool extremely recommendable in a, in a sense of people recommending it to others, right? Because that if you invite a new teacher, not only um, do you feel good about helping them, and that because that was before we had a referral system, but you actually get somebody who might write the template that you will use in the future. So inviting somebody, it was like a net benefit to everybody involved. The, the people being invited would get access to this whole template database and you inviting them had the chance of, of adding more templates to the database beyond your own. And we saw people already recommending it for that reason. So at some point, um, we were priced pretty low because teachers are very price sensitive. Many of our teachers did this online teaching as their second or third job. So you can probably tell um, there wasn't too much of a budget, but there was a budget. People already recommended a tool called ManyCam to each other when they started out as teachers, which is essentially like a put some funny um, animals or things into your video stream kind of tool. Right? Okay. It's just something where you can engage more with the kids, have a little dinosaur walk through the screen, and that's kind of <laughs> cute. Um, yeah. So people were already recommending purchasing a license for this tool to each other. So we knew, okay, they, these people understand that they're freelancers, that they're actually having a budget to be better at their job. So we had no problem uh, people recommending Feedback Panda and the community had no problem because it was yet another tool that would help you be better at your job. Be a better teacher, essentially. That's also what we kind of used in our slogan, right? It was save two hours a day and become a, a better teacher that has building is building better relationships with their students. This internal <laughs> tool allowed us to um, have a very recommendable product. And we had a price sensitive customer segment and we were initially charging them five bucks a month for limited um, access to the, to the tool and 10 bucks a month for unlimited access. We, a year later, turned this to 15 bucks a month only. We quickly got rid of the five bucks a month tool because that was really not worth it. But we were in essentially increasing our prices by 50%. So to make that a bit easier on the, the budget of most people, we implemented a referral system that was one of these win-win-win systems that we would get a new customer. So that was obviously our win. Our existing teacher would get a month for free and the newly invited teacher would get the subscription at the reduced price of 10 bucks a month. Cool. So that was that was kind of everybody would win in this situation consistently. And um, we, we implemented that on the day that we actually increased our prices. And we didn't actually see many more people using the, the referral link than they would already be using the original link to the product. So like the referral system didn't even do much 
in terms of new acquisition because people were already sharing the system, but at least okay. we, we had something going on for the people who were reluctant, right? We, we allowed them to, to share it and to keep their price point low as well. Last point, we implemented um, what I would call um, a community-first approach to outreach as well. We had a newsletter going on. So every week we would send a newsletter about many things like what the product was doing and what we were doing and all that stuff. But we always led with a section called VI Panda. So we took any the random people from our customer base, sent an email to them and said, hey, we, we're interested in featuring you in our newsletter just as one of our customers sharing their story. Do you want to send us like a picture of you with your family and tell us more about like how you started teaching English online and that kind of stuff? So every week we had to segment VI Panda and that was what we led the newsletter with. Here's this week's VI Panda. Somebody who is living in Cambodia and teaching English online remotely from there. Or here's the, the mom from Kansas with her three kids and they're sitting like on, on a bench and they're waving mm. the camera. Like really human stories about actual people using our product. And we led with that. And our blog post that we wrote about actually teaching English and our tool, that was like somewhere down in, in the newsletter. If people scrolled through that, that was nice. But the opening rates were significant because there was al always a new interesting person every single week. And we always tried to loop in the community into everything. If there was a new development in, in online English teaching methods or regulations in China, at some point they uh, forbade um, Chinese children from going to online schools after 9 p.m. because they noticed that they didn't sleep enough because parents <laughs> yeah. would like, kind of force their kids to stay up until like 11 or something. So they actually, yeah, so bad. They, 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 they put that into law in China. They do not allow it to have your kids be in front of a computer for like in, in, after school tutoring is what they called it after 9 PM or you'd go to jail. So Why? <laughs> that certainly affected teaching quite a bit. So now it's shifted yeah. right through the day and all these kind of things we communicated in the newsletter. We were part of the discussions. We were part of the Instagram community, which is pretty strong among teachers. As you probably know, like teachers hang out on Instagram because mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a format that um, just allows for conversation much more easily. Um, so we were part of that. Danielle was part of that. She joined these Instagram um, lives and, and just hung out with other people from the community, other like influencers in the online teacher community. And we were very community focused in everything we did. And that was our growth engine that allowed us to be a recommendable company with a recommendable product that was not questioned ever really as, oh, is this just somebody trying to make money, right? Mm. People always considered us to be these people that want to help and also make money. And, and that made a, made a big difference in, in our outreach. Now, I know that this doesn't work for every single community out there, right? Some communities are highly professional and you have to act professionally to be recognized as a professional member of that community. But that yeah. is also fine. You can tailor your communication to that, right? You can switch the community-centric into a profession-centric approach and write a regular newsletter about what happened in the industry and who the the people that have something important to say, what they have to say. Like you can, can always kind of adjust it, but being community-centric, I think is always an interesting idea because no matter how the community is set up to work, it's always a community. It's always people. It's always people relating with each other. It's sometimes tribal, sometimes not so much in a sense of interconnected and everybody knows everybody and that kind of stuff. But you can always leverage the community aspect for your business. Because if you're part of it, why not? Right? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I think uh, 
might have like heard before that you wished you'd maybe like got help sooner with like customer support because you know it's just you and Danielle so mm -hmm. it's that um I guess for people that are like solo founders or like mm -hmm. two people founders it can be quite difficult to like let go and just be like oh no I have to do everything in the business and yeah. only I know it and stuff like that so would you if you were to do it that kind of business again would you have taken on customer support center i think so i i had this problem with hiring and i i'm still kind of because it's hard for me because i've never really hired anybody in my life before always been hired myself but never hiring mm. anybody else so during the panda there, there were a couple times where it was also close to burnout just because there was a lot of responsibility on me as the only technical person and we had five and a half thousand customers or something and we were two people Right. And if, if uh, anything happens, then you can probably imagine how many customer service messages would flood into the system <laughs> and we would need to deal with that. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, like I said earlier, prior to, to starting Feedback Panda, I read a lot of books and I learned a lot from other founders on the Indie Hackers podcast and like the SaaS Club podcast and, you know, all these, these very um, sassy founder focused um, podcasts. <laughs> and uh, I learned that particularly in, in the book Built to Sell by John Warlow, if you want to build a good, well-running business, you needed to build it as a sellable business, as a business that doesn't need you, essentially. And a hmm. business doesn't need you if either you replace yourself or you build automation and systems into place that work without you, that work for you. So that's something we did from the beginning. We had a lot of documentation. I'm also German, so we love to document everything. So that kind of helped. Yeah. But um, we had a lot of internal documentation, process documentation, SOPs. If if there was any kind of problem that we hadn't encountered before that customers talked to us about, like, oh, I can't log in for some reason. I tried this and I tried that and it doesn't work. Hey, we would write an SOP, like a step-by-step -step on how we approached this problem, how we solved it, and put that into a Google Doc. And in the end, we had like 50 pages worth of SOPs just from the customer service conversations that we had. The other okay. thing we would do is we would turn this SOP into an, an help desk article immediately after helping this particular customer with this problem. So using Intercom, we used a knowledge-based feature as well. And if anybody would ever ask a similar question again in the future, they would be automatically suggested that particular article. So we immediately scaled our customer service by taking a single one-on-one -on -one answer and turning it into a one-on-many response. In the end, we had like 200 different um, articles in our knowledge base, and they, they would serve like 95% of the intercom communication that would come in, would be automatically rerouted to the article. People would solve the problem. Then intercom would ask them a couple minutes later, did that solve your problem? And they would click yes. So yeah. it wouldn't even come into our field of vision, which I with 5,000 customers makes a big difference, right? Yeah. So those I, systems I, were essential. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I see that a lot actually with um, like whenever I go into like, if I need support with a SaaS or something mm -hmm. like that, they'll like, they'll su yeah, suggest articles. Oh, did yeah. you try this? Try that. And then, yeah, I mean, sometimes it doesn't work, but sometimes you go on, look at it and it does. And I think as well, like when I made my like Gumroad course on newsletters, I kind of populated it with stuff that people had asked me. So that's mm -hmm. quite a good thing if anyone wants to like make a course or an epic. Yeah. And they don't know what to work on. It's just like, we'll base it on what people send you on DMs. Yeah, like, pretty much. You're like, yeah, it's, it's great. If you've got some kind of niche and someone's asked you like, oh, how did you code this? Or how did yeah. you build this? Or how did you sell this course or whatever? You can just be like, okay, just look through what people ask you. Yep. 
And that's like a good, really good thing to, to talk about. It's always good to take notes, like in many ways, right? It's, it's good for your, like, obviously customer service is one of the biggest areas where you can do this, like, because this stuff will be automatically reusable for other communication in, in that space. But internally, it's just as important. I'm, I'm building a new SaaS at the moment. I'm, um, in, in writing Zero to Sold, my book, I figured out that, uh, my, the links in my book, they were breaking kind of, and, and I built a little uh, project called Permanent Link to keep these links from breaking. It's kind of a link forwarding tool that works with automated link checking and custom like forwarding, all that kind of stuff. Doesn't really matter what it is, but I'm building this at the moment. And just today, I um, was going through my deployment documentation and I, I figured out, hey, I can actually improve this so I can really just have a step-by-step. -step. Like if I have a deployment, if I want to deploy to my server, um, and, and there's like a, a database migration involved, I have to take these five steps. And if there's no database migration involved, I have to take these three steps because it's easier. And I just really took the commands that I'm using on like in my um, terminal or something and put them in the Notion document. So next time I have a deployment or somebody else does a deployment for me because I'm, I know I'm on vacation or I hire somebody to do it for me. They could just go into this document, copy and paste the commands and put them in there. And that's including me, right? I don't need to write this out again. It's essentially yeah. templating my own business for myself. So I can quite reliably use these proven things that I don't need to cognitively think about again and go through this process safer, faster, and, um, also just more reliably. And I think that makes a lot of sense. You, taking notes for your own business, how do I deal with finances? How do I export something from my tax advisor? Just write a little SOP. It's not gonna hurt you to take like two minutes and write the steps down. And next time you do it, you'll already have saved some time, right? That's, that's important, absolutely. And third thing, this whole documentation and automation approach made our business extremely sellable. Like hmm. extremely sellable because we didn't have to tell anybody what to do. It was all there. Either it was already handled by Intercom and the automation systems that we had built into that. It wasn't just the knowledge base. We also had some um, automated answer. They have this tool called AnswerBot, or it was called AnswerBot at the time, where if certain keywords are in a question, you can automatically send them a certain step-by-step -step approach. It's really nice. And we had that for, oh, I can't log in. Well, have you tried logging with Google instead of logging with Facebook? It was like 98% yeah. of people's login <laughs> problems was that thing. But yeah. hey, if you have a good answer that converts, that responds um, immediately, and people know, oh, okay, I can try the other thing, and then it works for them, Hey, that's worth it, right? So we had that going for us. We had all these SOPs. We had like all the internal documentation. So when Schuster Capital, our eventual acquirer, when they approached us, we just essentially said, Hey, look at these documents. Is that what you want? They said, oh yeah, this is awesome. And <laughs> on our, uh, the transition period that we had after selling the business was extremely easy. Like it took us a couple of days to transition over the business because we had everything already there. Everything mm. was already documented. Everything was in Google Docs that could be shared with other people. We just really handed it over and that was that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think as well, before you sold, you'd put like, you'd shared your revenue on Indie Hackers mm -hmm. and that's how the private equity group found you. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, we had, sh we so, had um, shared our MRR on Indie Hackers through the, the Stripe, in Stripe integration for quite mm -hmm. a while. I think we had, okay. we had started that when we were at like 5K or something. And then, you know, it just grew, 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 grew. And if somebody who is into buying sustainable SaaS businesses see a graph that slowly and reliably goes up to the top and the right, they get interested, right? So that yeah. was really helpful. 
in getting eyes on the business from the acquisition perspective. So that, that was, yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, for some people that don't know on Indie Hackers, the website, it's like it's owned by Stripe and you can like show your revenue if you're like a bootstrap business, mm -hmm. but there's also an option where I guess they use like the Stripe API yeah. and it's like verified by Stripe. So you right. can't just put in, I know I'm making a million dollars a month or something yeah. like that. So and I think that makes a big difference. Like if, if you have like a graph and it comes from the actual service, right? When it's not just you putting in your self-reported data, but it comes from an API that immediately also communicates that you're not afraid of sharing your information, right? There's a psychological effect to this. I could always self-report and many people stop reporting this after a certain scale because it attracts a lot of competition that they might not want to have. That is this whole thing about transparency mm. and oversharing, which is an interesting discussion, but probably not for today. But if the while you share, it certainly instructs a lot about your business and your personality. And that invites people to share that sentiment, right? Like ShareSwift, these people have acquired 30 some properties before, before they acquired us. So they have a lot of experience and they know what to look for. So by sharing who you are and what you do and how you do it, you invite people that think similarly. And that makes the whole process, both of the acquisition in our case, um, the, the due diligence and the transition and just even staying in touch with people right now, much easier because you're just really kindred spirits at that yeah. point. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, how long did it take from the kind of, I guess, like they sent you an email maybe? Mm -hmm. And how long did it take for the unspecified amount of money to hit your bank account? <laughs> <laughs> I think um, not even three months or two months, something like that. It was, it okay. was very quick. Like the, not too bad. Involving the due diligence process too, right? Yeah. Like the, it was, that was easy because we, again, uh, highly well-organized to being a German business, half owned <laughs> by a German. Um, Danielle is Canadian, but she's just as organized. She's more organized than me, just in, in different ways. Um, okay. We had everything in place. We had a profit and loss sheet. We, we were using um, bare metrics at this point and a profit wall to have our internal reporting or internal like met metrics tracking. So we had these things that we could just show people. Here is our cohort analysis. Here is our MRR hmm. over the months and our churn and our retention and all these things. They were all there. We had all the data. So that made the, the actual due diligence very quick and very easy because they also knew what they were looking for and found it very quickly. Um, and, and yeah, that, that was very fast and transition was fast. We were out of there quite quickly. Like we hired awesome. our own replacements with them. That was interesting too. Like I hired my developer replacement, uh, another Elixir developer, and Danielle hired the CEO replacement for her position because she okay. was leaving wow. the business. And she also hired the customer service agent because we needed to find an actual teacher. So we hired from inside our community was also interesting. We hired a teacher to do our customer service with the other teachers. So they knew hmm. exactly the lingo of the people they were talking to. They knew exactly how to talk to them about the problems. They knew exactly how to talk to them about how to solve it because they had the same technical skill level. It was awesome. Like hiring from your own customer base for customer service is a, is a, is a secret that, um, yeah, it sh should be out more. Like people should do that more because it's really cool. I have seen that actually before with like, uh, Ben Tulsil and MakerPad. Yeah. Like when, so MakerPad's like a platform for, I guess, learning no-code tools. And he, yeah, he's always just hired people that were in his community already. So when he needed like a marketing person, he hired someone that was, yeah, was on the forum. Yeah. And yeah, hiring people, I think, 
that already use your product or are in the community just yeah like you say it makes total sense because they yeah they already know what they're doing they're not like a complete random person that you need to sit them down and explain what your product is yeah. so uh yeah it makes a lot of sense it makes onboarding much easier too and then if you have documentation in place that's going to make it even easier so i don't think we, we trained our customer service replacement at all like we just handed them over the documents and then they just took over it was awesome so when you're next working on the SaaS, like are you do you think you always want to be like coding and doing it all yourself or would you work with other people? I'll work with people more, I think. I mean, the, this this SaaS that I'm building right now is a very low touch thing because it's really a link forwarding tool for authors. So there's really not that much there, even feature wise to build. Like people have links in their books and they need to point somewhere. So they exchange the links and they're good, right? It's really not too complicated. But um, if there's ever any point where I feel over, over my head, so like I'm, I'm in over my head, I'm going to hire. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to get people in there from the beginning. Um, the moment I notice this, same goes for customer service. But right now, it's more one of the many projects that I have, right? I'm still writing books and I'm still like actively like uh, being involved in the community. It's not that I'm focused 100% on the SaaS, which is also how I'm building it. I'm building it as something that can mostly run on its own and doesn't need me too much. But yes, okay. I would definitely get help the, sooner. Than okay. last time. Yeah. No, well, that sounds like the developer's dream. Make yeah. something and just like, yeah, watch it operate on its own. I, I was uh, actually, um, sorry, for, I want to throw this in there. I was actually looking for a project that had as little external dependencies as possible. Like, I didn't want to build anything that integrates with another service. Because mm -hmm. if the other service changes, then I need to change. If the service goes away, then my tool is pointless. And I didn't want anything that needed complicated integrations in itself from other services. Like I didn't want to have anything that needs complicated calculations or stuff on, on other services or uploading files somewhere and all that stuff. So it's really a basic product that unless my database explodes, doesn't have any interoperability problems. So that's kind of what I was looking for in this product because with Feedback Panda, there was a lot of integrations that we needed to take care of and that was very stressful too. So I'm trying to reduce the platform dependency of the product itself. Yeah, that makes sense. That sounds really smart. I know that you're like a really big advocate of building an audience. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, I mean, for instance, I quite often see like really successful businesses then like I go to their founder and like their founder is making maybe like six or seven figures and he's got like 2000 followers, which is like less than me. Yep. And I'm just like, oh, this guy's killing it. And he's just like, maybe <laughs> I should get off Twitter. But why should people have an audience? And, you know, do you think you can be successful without one? I think you can be successful without one, but it certainly doesn't hurt to have this alternative channel, right? When, when you're Think about audiences for founders or, or software businesses in, in general. You kind of they're looking at two audiences. You're looking at the, the founder personality and the actual professional business that we're talking about, right? So I'm kind of embodying both at the at this moment. I'm myself as a person, and I'm the founder of Permanent Link, kind of embodying the whole writer Permanent Link link rot problems space. So that I'm overlapping here. But for some industries, there's no overlap. Their their our audience is on LinkedIn, but their founders on Twitter or their audience is in actual offices and not hanging out digitally at all or hanging out in, I don't know, in, in news groups or, you know, email lists or stuff like that, where there's no overlap really between the Twitter audience that we see as Twitter users and their actual professional audience. But if you have an audience on Twitter 
and you have a professional audience on Twitter, then this overlap can do a lot of good. It doesn't need to be, but it is, is a good idea. The good thing about having a founder audience as a person is that no matter what happens to your business, you're going to have access to people, right? Consider that permanent link is not going to work out for me. And it's not going to be permanent. It's temporary link, you know, and it's, it goes away. The business is just gone. I still have my, at this point, 16,000 Twitter followers, no matter what happens to the business, right? That's something that if I want to build something else in the space, if I want to find another opportunity, even if I just want to find a job, like if, if, if I were to ask people right now on Twitter, I need a job. Do you have an idea? I would probably get a couple invites like into companies in I'm some sure. capacity. Even if it's just consulting or something, I would probably be able to find a way to pay my rent. So um, this particular founder audience is something valuable all by itself because it sustains you throughout your success or failure with the business that you're actually building. The business audience is for growth, for conversion, for sales, for marketing. And if you sell to other founders, then your founder audience is your business audience. If you have a different audience or a different kind of customer, you need to act like in, in two different capacities. Doesn't matter um, though that much because you can still build a founder audience involving other founders in your life, building in public, sharing information, being involved in, in the, the founder space that will set you apart as an actually interesting person that gets invited to podcasts and then can talk about their business, right? Because that is also very important that you get the opportunity, you get on the stage, and then you can talk about whatever you want. That's what your personal audience allows you to. And your professional audience, that's just really interesting for the growth metrics of your business. But those are, those are slightly different sometimes. So I would say it's not required, but it certainly will help you be even more successful. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, I can, I can think of lots of people that have, um, that have got their own personal following. So then even if they, yeah, end up selling their business like he did, it's not like they've like lost all their audience yeah. overnight just because they've, that just because they've like left that or sold that. You've made this like big zero to sold, which is an epic. I think it's available in print as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it seems to have done really well. Do you have any like sales figures you can boast about? So I think at this point I um, sold about 5,000 books, 5,000 wow. copies of the book. Which, awesome. Yeah, I, I'm happy, can tell you that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's my, my first book I've ever written and it's written in, in my second language. So I'm very happy with that. Yeah. It's also out as an audiobook that took a while to get right, but it's that, that has really helped sales as well. Those are lagging behind. I just really released it um, a month and a half ago and audiobook sales are like two, two months behind. So they're not even reported yet, but from the, the initial figures, it looks, it looks very promising. I think I made around somewhere between 40 and 60,000 euros, like should be roughly equivalent to the dollar at this point yeah, just for reference nice. uh, with the book. Um, with an expense of maybe six, 7,000 just for like editors and proofreaders and marketing fees and that kind of stuff. So it's been heavily in the plus. I priced it at a point at $10 for, for the, the ebook, like the, the digital format to just get it at a lot of reach, a lot of distribution because I mean, I sold a business a couple of years ago. I'm not really doing this for money at this point. It's mm -hmm. nice to make money with it because there's also validation built in and all that, but I didn't price it much higher for that reason. So it's spread out. And I think that's that's been doing me pretty well. Like a lot of people are talking about it. A lot of people are still sharing pictures of themselves with the book, which is always really <laughs> yeah. nice. 
honestly, my, my book gets to travel to places where I don't get to travel to. I see a lot of pictures of my book next to a pool or in a really nice like Spanish city that I would like to go to. <laughs> so, um, an info product yeah. gets to travel more than I do. But hey, that's just me. Yeah, it's, it's nice, right? It, it's it's just yeah. it's just fun. The book is sold like, all over the world through KDP, Amazon's um, Kindle. Um, what is it called? Yeah, the, the, the distribution platform essentially, and it's a print-on-demand book. So that's everything that that gets printed is kind of, kind of on demand and, and paperback, um, which is nice, right? So I don't have to have a warehouse or stockpile or anything like this. So sure. it's, it's been very interesting to self-publish the book, and it's also the reason why I'm writing the next one because I had a lot of fun. I never thought that I'd be a writer. Honestly, I started out as a, as a software engineer, and I was surprised mm-hmm. to find myself being an entrepreneur. And then I was surprised to find myself being a writer as well. But writing is just the most enjoyable thing to me. Like I write a new blog post every week. I have my podcast where I essentially read the blog posts for people who don't like reading or who don't have the time for it or don't want to. And um, that has been the most enjoyable year of my life so far. So I just really want to continue this, hence the new book, um, which really dives into this whole community-based approach, which is essentially what I'm doing in writing the book. Like it's like Zero to Salt is about the story of Feedback Panda, but it's also the blueprint to how to write a book. And the embedded entrepreneur is the story about Zero to Salt and Feedback Panda, but it's also a blueprint to how to write a book in public embedded in the community. Kind of trying to be a bit meta about my stuff. because There's so many like (laughs) Russian dolls or like circles within circles. It's crazy. it's 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 the serial entrepreneur thing that I found for myself. Like you do a thing, you recognize a problem while you try to solve another problem and then you solve that problem that you just found and then mm. you go it's just like a re- recursion right you found another pro- find another problem during that and you try to solve it i did feedback panda i figured out oh i need to t- be able to teach these these things that i learned so i wrote the book and in writing the book i learned oh links are not permanent so i built permanent links so you know it's, it's all these these kind of um being exposed to problems while solving problems will give you ideas on what you can do next, which is why so yeah. many founders just continue to build things that came up. It's Josh Pickford, he sold Metrics. First thing he mm-hmm. does, he made a lot of money, right? He, he sold this for like $4 million, the business. So mm-hmm. now he's building a wealth organizing tool for people who want to like organize their money because that's his problem. Right. So he's solving yeah. his own issues. It's really interesting to see um, yeah, founders just not stopping when they're done. <laughs> so you're not just like sitting in a hammock, counting your money. Well, what would that be, like, right? What, what, what yeah. kind of life would that be? I was trying to, Absolutely. I was actually trying once we sold the business, I tried to just sit in front of this computer and play World of Warcraft for two weeks. And I could only play so much World of Warcraft, surprisingly. There used to be a time where I could play <laughs> that all day, all week, right? But not yeah. anymore because I had found something much, much better. I'd found passion in helping people solve their problems. And mm. when that was gone, I needed to find something similar again, which is why I started writing on my blog and essentially writing the book because I needed to help other people. Because I, I had encountered that in building Feedback Panda, all these online English teachers who they were reaching out, they were super frustrated, something wasn't working. I solved it for them, pushed it to the pr- production service within minutes and they were, minds were blown, right? They were, oh my God, wow. somebody's actually listening to me and total switch in personality. From that point on, they were the most loving, caring people you could talk to. And doing wow. this, being able to do this, I have never encountered anything in my life like this before. And now I want to do this all the time. I want to give somebody something and then their mind just flips and they're the happiest, most productive person in the world. 
that's kind of that's what I want to do. Yeah. That's why I write. That's, that's why I'm doing this. Right. That's why I'm talking about yeah, these things. That's awesome. Yeah. It's it's just something I I cannot not do anymore. And probably makes yeah. me unemployable. But it's just really <laughs> what I want to do. Yeah, that's so cool. That's really cool. I think. Um, yeah, it's funny. I saw a YouTube video the other day with like Jerry Seinfeld was stopped in the street and was asked a bunch of really stupid <laughs> questions by this, I know, kind of fake journalist or whatever. Mm. And the journalist was like, oh, but you don't have to work. You can just like sit around all day. And Jerry Seinfeld was like, yeah, but what kind of life is that? I mean, <laughs> just like, I mean, why am I like, what's the point in doing that? Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think a lot of people that are earlier in their careers are kind of like, oh but if i made however many million i just sit around all day but yeah. i mean it's really I, not. I think you'd get bored pretty quickly and it's like, like you you're in the prime of your entrepreneurial like productivity career essentially you just did the best thing you've ever done like why on earth would you flip this around and do nothing forever like hmm. don't get me wrong the first thing we did once we had sold the business was take a, a trip to south africa and have an actual vacation because we didn't have a vacation nice. for for years but we came back from that like i was already mid vacation like mid safari thinking about what am i going to write about in my blog like that was already <laughs> happening because it, it was just something right. i wanted and, and needed to do and it's yeah you have all this knowledge saved up or constructed in your mind from building a successful business at that point, it would be a waste, honestly, to not do anything anymore. Like a waste for yourself, obviously, but also for everybody around you. Because all these, I gotta say, all these people who taught me how to build a business were doing this just like I am now on their own free time, right? They were going mm. on podcasts, they were writing books, they were giving interviews, sharing their knowledge, not because somebody um, paid them for that, but because they thought I need to give back. And those are the, the giants on which shoulders I'm standing. So now I'm trying to give back the same way so that I can teach others to eventually get into this position of financial independence and like post-economic state of mind and all these little <laughs> nice concepts where yeah. they can say, oh yeah, now I can share what I learned with all these people that just started out last week. That's kind of, it's, it's almost a, yeah. a, a, it's not a, not a mission, but it's, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a privilege even to do this, right? It's it's something that I expect to do, because otherwise it yeah. would be a waste. That's awesome. Yeah, and I have to say it is very cool that zero sold is like what ten bucks, because mm -hmm. I mean, so Feedback Panda before was doing like fifty five k a month, mm -hmm. and you yeah sold it for a lot of money, shall we say? So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean it'd be very easy for you to be like, it's a hundred bucks. I've, I've sold this like massive business or it's, you know, a thousand bucks or yeah. whatever. Uh, so yeah, it's really cool. I have to be honest that, yeah, it's a, a very kind of like Thank accessible you. price point and you're not just like more money. Yeah. yeah I mean, th there are different kinds of mediums that have different price points, right? If I ever were to make a course on something that would require me to like get a nice studio set up and like really focus on, on what I'm saying and try to do it right, probably would price that one higher than the book because the book is commodity in a sense, right? That's, that's mm. how we understand books. That's how we conceptualize pricing. And it's also the densest form of knowledge transfer that doesn't involve me actually doing the transfer. Right. If I give a book to somebody, it's like, 
they can read through it in whatever time frame and learn as much as they want from it. I don't need to be there. So it's not really taking much of my time. But if with a workshop or like a community looks very different. So that, that would be pricing in a different way. And also, honestly, I knew from my blog that most of like the third biggest audience that I have after um, US Americans and, and British people is Indian people, mm. people from India. And I know that prices in India are different from prices in Europe and in the United States. So I was trying to make it at least somewhat accessible for a person in India of not much means to get the book as well, right? I would love to have a parity pricing, like purchasing parity pricing integrated into Gumroad or something, or even Amazon <laughs> where people in India would pay less for this. But as, as I know, as far as I know, they don't have that yet. So last week, actually, there was yeah. Gumroad day. Um, uh, Right. Or when was it? Let's, let's say 7th of April, I guess, just to make this more clear. And yeah. um, everybody was lowering their prices quite a bit because Gumroad Day meant that no, no creator on Gumroad would be charged the Gumroad fees. They would uh, kind of give you like 100% of the money. I think I sold 600 something books on that day and just because I dropped my prices to 50% to five bucks. Because that mm -hmm. was already putting this so much more into the affordability category for many people from all over the world. I had uh, sales in countries in Africa that I had never sold a book to before on that day cool. and in, in cool. Southeast Asia as well. So that re it really makes a difference. So I'm, I'm probably yeah. gonna, I'm going to be doing something um, on the first birthday of my book as well, like on the 29th okay. of June or something, but I'll look into that um, when the time yeah. comes. But it, I think it, that makes a difference. Yeah, it makes some sales at a lower price. It's better than yeah. no sales. I and mean, we are in the middle of a creator economy without gatekeepers. Why would I like literally gatekeep the price to that book into spheres where people of certain nationalities could not afford it by default, right? I, I just don't want to do that. I mean, the print book has a higher price because it is actually being physically printed by Amazon and they take like 70% because they're Amazon and they could do whatever they want, right? That's why yeah. it has an actual price, um, somewhere 24-ish or something in dollars, but the ebook, which is a, a digital copy, should not be priced that high. I, at least I feel that, that way. And that's fine if other people don't think so. Honestly, I'm in a very privileged position in many ways. I'm quite aware of that, but not needing to do this for money as an info product makes this a, yeah, a, a no brainer choice for me to price. It nice up. one. I was just wondering if you like, just to finish up, what, what advice do you have for someone that's wanting to like, maybe learn to code and like start their own business? Like mm. what, um, what kind of direction would you send them into? Well, um, <laughs> fiddling around with stuff is always a good exercise. <laughs> That's kind of where I got my first job, right? Trying to, what, okay. what's the current uh, framework du jour, like React or React mm -hmm. TypeScript application. Just go into something that a lot of people are using, but there's a lot of resources. I mean, there's, there's YouTube videos on... Um, every single topic where you get taught essentially for free, or you can go to do a boot camp where you pay, but you know you have a curriculum and you have people looking over your shoulders, or you, you go to like, um, I don't know, Egg, Egghead IO and look through these courses. There's a lot of free ones there as well. There's a lot of self teaching material out there, much more now than there was when I started out, but I still to this day go to these websites to learn about new things. I just recently started working on a React project with other people, and I'm not a React developer. I come from the view and Angular side of, of JavaScript. 
right? So okay. I needed to understand React a bit better. So I went, <laughs> as usual, I take a bath, I take my computer, and I just watch like React tutorials for a couple hours. And I did okay. that a couple of days in a row, and it was awesome. And I learned a lot of stuff, right? So I, and Good. then I like fiddle around with it, built a couple of projects, and um, I would go into an, a popular existing technology that is both um, modern enough to sustain um, a community into the future and um, also an educational community and is um, also widely available. Resources are widely available. And like I, what I said, JavaScript, React, that kind of stuff. It's very, very popular and you can probably find um, help quite quickly if you need it. And if you want to build a project, there's also a lot of frameworks out there, a lot of boilerplates and a lot of tutorials and guides on how to build a little SaaS application. I think that's why I would start out. Use a commonly available popular framework slash language combination, which is not what I did with Feedback Panda with Elixir. Elixir is no. a very, uh, wouldn't say very niche. It's, it's getting bigger and bigger, but it's still uh, compared to PHP or Ruby. And it's by far not as, as a popular framework but it is something that I had worked with for many years at that point. So it was very easy for me to build something quickly from that framework, a, a completely new SaaS tool, because I already knew exactly how to structure it. So if you are already kind of um, looking into something that you played around with before, just go with that. Right? Don't try to completely learn something new with a new project. It's always what I, what I the advice that I try to give founders to have some sort of technical background. If you're completely new to this, go with a popular framework. If you already know a framework, use that. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like really good advice. Like I, I'm kind of like learning Django at the moment and mm -hmm. I just chose it basically because lots of my friends have Django. So yeah, that's really uh, good. I can, you could just talk, talk to them, them, right? Yeah, yeah, I just bug them for advice and just yeah. like, Austin, can you help me with this again? Uh, and yeah, also as well, I can search on Stack Overflow and there's tons of YouTube videos. So I'm not using like a super like obscure framework or language or something. So yeah, yeah I think very, that definitely helps. very popular. It's kind of stacking these advantages, some unfair, some fair, right? You have your friends that can help you. You have Stack Overflow, which is full of Django advice. You have these, you have Slack communities that are all about Python and, and uh, the underlying frameworks. And, and you have a lot of different sources and resources that you can uniquely use to your own advantage, right? So might just as well. I, I, I would do the exact same and I do the exact same. Like I'm in JavaScript projects because that's my community. That's why I know best what to do and who to reach out to and Elixir at the same time, because that's just what I've been building tools in for the last six years. So, and they both kind of coincide pretty well because one is a backend and one is a frontend technology. So you can combine them, makes it even better because now I have access to the whole sphere. It's use what you know, use what you have access to, use where your friends are currently hanging out as well. I think that's that's really good advice from your end as well. I think you're, you're doing the absolute right thing here in this space. Yeah, nice one. That's good. that's good to know. Uh, do you have any favorite podcasts for developers? Ooh, for developers. Um, well, yeah, I I don't really listen to developer podcasts too much because I'm I'm more mm -hmm. in the indie hacker space, and that's more the yeah. indie parts than the hacker parts that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I would really recommend anything that combines these two spaces, which would be the Indie Hackers yeah. podcast, the Software Social um, podcast, maybe the Solopreneur Hour, which is also in, an interesting uh, podcast that I used to listen to quite a bit. Anything that kind of overlaps these two things, because 
as developers, we are very, very easily boxed into our developer mindset, which is very product focused. It's very solution focused. And even though that's great, it limits us when it comes to building a business, because building a business is very different from building a product. Like a business Mm -hmm. has a lot of human components, a lot of talking to people, like doing market research, actually marketing, selling stuff, scary, right? Uh, Going out there, telling people about your thing. And if if you're not used to people doing this without feeling bad about it, like doing self-promotion, like I am with my upcoming book, The Embedded Entrepreneur, you know? Like if you're not (laughs) used to this, to people doing this um, in in the media you consume, you're going to have a hard time doing it yourself. So exposing yourself to something that is slightly out of your comfort zone, that is where I would redirect people. It's hard. It's hard to deal with this if you're so used to technical podcasts. I, I was in that situation myself, but it really opened my eyes and then opened my um, approach vectors to all these kind of things, made it easier to transition into a more business person, personality that is both a coder and an entrepreneur. That's my recommendation. Cool. Nice one. Uh, do you have any favorite people to follow on Twitter? Ooh, I think I follow 6,000 people at this point. So um, all of those, <laughs> yeah. I, I have a couple lists on Twitter where I, I track like the most interesting people, founders that are um, currently doing stuff like like Barricade or um, what, what are what other names like Adid. Like, there's a lot of interesting names. They, they kind of switch over every couple of weeks. There's new interesting faces. So mm-hmm. I, I don't really have a, a recommendation here um, yeah, at cool. this point. But, but hey, just follow as many interesting people as possible. That's my recommendation. Don't save your follows up. That's, that's one thing that I learned on Twitter in particular. You can always unfollow people that post weird stuff, but you will never know if they post good stuff if you don't follow them. That's that's like yeah. one, one of the, the things. Yeah, I find it weird when I think it's more of a marketing thing or something where yeah. people are like, oh, I don't want to follow too many people or I want to keep my ratios like in yeah. balance. I want, and yeah. it's just like, well, yeah, why limit yourself? There's like, yes, I, yeah, I've always followed the maximum amount of people. Yes. Because I don't really care about the noise. I just want to. Yeah, you, you don't. You don't have control over one half of this ratio. So why would you artificially limit yourself to the in, in the one that you have control over, right? You, you don't really have control over how many people follow you. That's up to you to provide meaningful content and engagement and like, making people interested in you. But you have control over who you follow to inspire you to create content and to actually engage with. I would recommend following as many engage-worthy people as possible and consistently engage with their content to get more people to follow you. Like you have to follow to be followed. Now it's not a follow yeah. for follow situation. I, I don't condone that kind of stuff. But to have a like a realistic relationship with people, it just needs time, and you need to mm. be present in people's eyes. You need to actually audition for their follow in front of them by interacting with other people that they follow. So absolutely follow as many people, meaningful relationships, of course, right? They don't follow anything, but follow people that you find interesting and that could potentially invite more engagement, discussion, conversation, questions, answers, that kind of stuff. Okay. Nice one. Yeah. That sounds really great. Where can we find out more about you on the internet? Well, I spend 26 hours a day on Twitter, so you can follow me uh, on Twitter at Avidkal, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. Um, and then I have the blog, obviously, which is like the central note for all my writing and podcasting and stuff. It's called The Bootstrap Founder, thebootstrapfounder.com. And you also find links to my books and my projects and all that kind of stuff there. 
Um, I think that's enough. Don't need to drop any more. Zero to Soul, that's the biggest book currently out. And The Embedded Entrepreneur, that's going to come out a month from yeah. now. Or And, and that is, I, I don't know when we're going to be releasing this particular podcast. I don't even know when my book is going to be out. So a month from now is probably right. <laughs> probably today. It's probably just like, uh, we'll yeah, do it. It so could it's on be the same today. Day. Yeah, and, yeah. And I'm super flexible with that kind of stuff. So it'll be out, right? Just um, you'll, yeah. you'll see. Follow me on Twitter and I'll tell you. Cool. Nice one. Well, thanks a lot for talking us through Learn's Code and building a business and selling a business and writing a book and building <laughs> an audience. Yeah, it's been lots of fun. And so, yeah, have a good rest of the day. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Bye. Okay. Thanks for listening to the show. I really enjoyed chatting to Arvid and I hope you can check out his ebooks. There are links in the description. If you're looking for more content like this, there are over 100 interviews with developers for a self-taught or have been to coding boot camps over on nocsdegree.com. If you're looking for a developer job, check out nocsok.com. If you want to help out the podcast, please give it a review wherever you listen to podcasts.